Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Reddit users have been driving Wall Street crazy, investing in certain stocks like GameStop to force up retail GameStop is set to continue their head-spinning ascent today. Shares are now up more than 60% pre-market. GameStop, this this video game store, up 2,500% this year. It's like a David versus Goliath story. This GameStop situation is the craziest I think I've ever seen. Now, there's a forum I've mentioned before. Wall Street bets. Last week, a group of degenerate traders from Reddit took on Wall Street and nearly took down a hedge fund. With approximately 140% of GameStop shares sold short, they initiated a short squeeze, forcing a number of hedge funds to rush to cover their positions, causing the price to rise even higher. By January the 28th, Melvin Capital, a $12.5 billion hedge fund, had lost 30% of its value requiring Citadel and Point72 Asset Management to inject $2.75 billion into the fund. As the public cheered on the Reddit bros, the trading app Robinhood halted the buying of GameStop, claiming capital issues. This led to widespread outrage. But this could have been the week that changed everything, where the little guys figured out how to challenge the big funds. Yet it proved once again that those who control the flow of money control the rules. I'm Peter McCormack, and this is The Wolves of Wall Street Bets, a podcast for defiance. In early January, GameStop, a chain store struggling against the digitisation of the industry, was put under increasing pressure from the COVID-19 lockdowns. With the company struggling, a number of institutional investors had shorted the stock, This is the process of betting that a company's stock price will fall. After hitting a low of $2.57 in 2020, one hedge fund decided to back the company and the share price had risen to nearly $19 by the end of the year. But despite this, many institutional investors were still betting against GameStop and in January, Wall Street Bets, a group of unconventional traders on Reddit, entered the fray. Hi, so I'm Jamie Rogozinski. I founded Wall Street Bets back in 2012 and uh, actively moderated it for the past eight years. Uh, stepped away last year in April. I mean, Wall Street Bets, most people are referring to the forum on Reddit, which is the, the largest presence of Wall Street Bets. It's just a community of people that have a different take on the stock market. You know, you have uh, all sorts of participants in the, in, the, in the market. You have these passive investors that buy and hold these diversified portfolios, dividend paying, whatever inflation stuff. And then you have traders. These are people that are uh, participants are try- trying to make these short term moves indifferent as to the underlying company, but they're, they're hoping to capitalize on just price action, different patterns that they can recognize and whatnot. And, you know, what, what they've done in Wall Street Bets, Wall Street Bets kind of started with that trader field, but it's evolved into an entirely different genre of, uh, of participants that is. Uh, a huge number of participants that, that can't necessarily be brushed away uh, anymore, especially 
made evident after this week, you know, where, where these guys are just looking to make jokes, to make memes, embrace the risk, embrace the lose at all. Everyone hopes to make money, you know, but they're, they're okay with it if they lose. There once was a stock that put to sea. The name of the stock was GME. The price blew up and the shorts dipped down. Hold my bully boys hold. <gasps> this community of YOLO traders with the tagline, like 4chan found a Bloomberg terminal and a sea shanty theme song, discovered that 140% of GameStop shares were being sold short. More shares were being sold short than were available. We'll cover how this can happen later, but all you need to know right now is that this is a problem for those short if the price suddenly moves up. And that is what happened to GameStop as a number of traders started buying the stock. Before the news had hit the market, Wall Street bets came up and bought it with diamond hands. They knew they'd profit. As the share price started to rise, the investors who were short had to start buying GameStop shares to cover their short position, further driving up the share price. This vicious cycle drove the share price up from $20 to $450 in a matter of days. For decades, Wall Street institutions and billionaire hedge fund managers have controlled the financial markets. But I wanted to find out how a ragtag group of amateur traders managed to take on the big guys. So I reached out to Bill Barheit, someone I've known for a couple of years and has become my go-to person for explaining how financial markets work. The stock market is meant to be a marketplace that brings buyers and sellers together. Right? At any given time, I'm willing to sell a certain amount of a stock for a certain price and somebody else is willing to buy a certain amount of a stock for a certain price. And at some point in time, those two prices match and an order gets executed. In addition to the price, there's an amount. So I'm willing to buy a hot dog for a dollar. You're willing to sell a hot dog for a dollar. But maybe I want to buy 10 hot dogs. And the person selling the hot dogs is only willing to sell one. So that means I've got to wait for more sellers to get in line to be willing to sell at the same price so in order to get up to the 10 hot dogs. Right. So running a marketplace is not just a question of buying and selling at a price. It's how much are you buying and selling at any given time. And that marketplace has to make all of this fair, efficient and as open and transparent as possible. And then settle the trade so that the dollar versus the hot dog gets traded. In addition to having this marketplace where you can buy and sell shares, you can actually take advantage of what you think is going to happen in the markets to make certain bets, right? I bet that the value of some stock is going to go down. So how do I do that? Well, if I want to make a bet that the value of a stock is going to go down, the easiest way to do that is to borrow the shares from someone else, then sell those shares. So if the stock goes down, when I buy the share back and give it back to the person I borrowed from, the difference is my profit. When shorting, the profit you make is limited because the stock can only go to zero. It can't go to negative. So if the stock is at $10 and I am making the bet that it's going to go down, my profit is limited to $10 per share. But if that stock goes up, these short sellers face a different problem. The problem is that my downside risk is infinite because the stock can keep going up, but I still have to buy it back 
to give it back to the person that I borrowed it from. So if it goes to $1,000 a share, my losses are 100 times the price at the time I bought it. This is what's happening now with GameStop. The biggest problem is, is not that people are borrowing the shares and, and selling them. It's that there's more shares shorted now for GameStop than actually exist, meaning 140% of the GameStop shares were actually sold short. And you would have to ask the question, how is it possible that more shares have been sold than possibly exist? And the reason is rehypothecation. Before I explain rehypothecation, I need to first explain what hypothecation is, which is where assets are given as collateral for a debt collateral. Should the debt be seized upon, then the assets given as collateral can be seized. Most of us will understand this in the terms of our homes. When you buy a home, you take out a mortgage, and you are entering into a hypothecation agreement because while you retain the title to the house, if you fail to pay the mortgage, then the bank can take your home away from you. Okay, so if you've got that, then rehypothecation is when a lender takes the collateral from the original loan and uses it as collateral for a new debt. The problem with this is that it can become unclear who owns which asset if the chain fails. It sounds like that shouldn't be possible, but it is. And it happens all the time. It happens in banking with your money. It happens in stocks with your shares. And it's a, it's a, it's a kind of core component, unfortunately, to the existing banking system. And it's how you get in these scenarios like 2008 where we're over leveraged. And that's what's basically going on here. So now when you're over leveraged, the, the problem becomes if the price goes up a little bit, your losses get magnified, so you may have to buy those shares back to cover your losses quickly. But if you have to do that all of a sudden, you end up with a melt up instead of a melt down because more and more people now are losing money on those short sales. More and more people have to come in to buy, and you basically get this idea of a squeeze. You've heard of a short squeeze. That's what you're actually doing here. You're squeezing the shorts to basically have to buy to cover their losses before the losses get out of control. Because like I said, there's no floor on or no ceiling, excuse me, on losses when you're short. So the higher it goes, the higher the losses, and the more likely they're going to have to buy at a higher price to cover those losses. So, th so it just basically creates a snowball effect, which is magnified now by the fact that this Reddit subgroup has caused all of these other retail buyers to come in and pile on top, which is now creating another snowball effect, driving the price even higher at the same time. And, and so now it's unstoppable until some other event comes in or you simply run out of buyers. That's, the, that's kind of the ultimate event is there are no more buyers. On the one hand, it's just an internet community. The simplest base layer, it's like a million other internet communities that have come together to form around some affinity or interest, have created their own set of terminologies, their own set of memes, right? I mean, this is what Reddit is so good at, is it allowed people to turn affinity and interest into community. This is Nathaniel Whittemore, the host of The Breakdown Podcast who has also been looking into the culture of Wall Street bets. 
So I think that that's like layer one is just this really strong affinity community that grew up on Reddit. Now, what's happened, I think, since then is they started to, because their affinity is a way of interacting with the world, they started to create, you know, uh, common allyships, common enemies, and it, it took on this whole nother level, you know? So, I mean, ultimately, you could be as reductive as saying it's an internet community talking about stock picks. On the other hand, you could call it a movement of disenfranchised people who are sort of loosely, you know, loosely aligned around the things that they want to try to pursue from a market standpoint. It seems to me that they're trying to find cheat codes for making money. I mean, absolutely. I think, and I think the, I think, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot, but I think that when, when people have a visceral sense of the unfairness and the hypocrisy around it, it's not that that assessment is wrong, right? Trying to find cheat codes around money. It's that everyone in every part of the world is always trying to find cheat codes around money. Historically, cheat codes around money have been locked out to the group who writes the rules of money. And when these guys figured out a set of cheat codes for money and applied them and they worked, everyone was like, well, you're not allowed to do that, right? It's like, it's like this is too dangerous for you. So I think I would almost say, like, absolutely, they're trying to find the cheat codes of money, but so is everyone, right? As Jamie, the founder of Wall Street Bets, said in his book about the subreddit, it is entirely conceivable that this generation, or at least a large part of it, takes the financial system less seriously or has less respect than the previous generation. This generation has 8% less home ownership than its predecessor. It also has 1.5 trillion in student debt and its net worth on average is lower. Wall Street Bets is a rebellion against the boomers who have bled the system. And these millennials know that working hard might just not be enough. So rather than slave at a job to get their foot on the ladder, they would rather scream YOLO and take a gamble on the stock market. I think this is why, particularly to me, Wall Street Bets is so incendiary right now in a way that like, it, it is almost sort of universal support for people who dig in and see what's going on. Because the common refrain with that is like, well, it's not illegal to do what they did, right? Like, I tweeted about the Nancy Pelosi thing. And I got like, I mean, the vast majority of people were like, yeah, what the fuck? The, the, the people who were kind of pushed back is like, well, of course, there's an electric vehicle program coming. It's like, it doesn't matter that everyone knew that EV was going to be an important part of the Biden agenda. We're talking about specific timing here, you know, um, with Kelly Loeffler, like, and that that whole set of people who sold stock. Like the thing there was people were like, well, there's, you know, it's not necessarily illegal. But it's like, it doesn't matter, you know, like don't stop trying to the, give us the like kind of legalities of it. And what Wall Street Bets does is instead of complaining about that, it's looking at the system. I mean, these are folks who are sitting there trying to understand the playbook. They're not saying, oh my God, Wall Streeters shouldn't be able to make it short. They're like, all right, if these guys can naked short 140% of the available shares of a company, which we can have a whole separate conversation about how effed up that is, but if they can do that, why can't we take the other side of that trade? Why can't we say, here's a company that one, we all have a strong affinity for because we grew up with it, nostalgia matters. Two, they just had a big investment from a guy who's an interesting investor who could may maybe make a turnaround. Three, we just think even if it's a tough business in general, it's radically undervalued relative to what it could be. And we shouldn't allow it to just be kind of blown out of the water. And then we're going to do something about it. We're going to put our own capital at risk to do something about it. And so there's no complaining. There's no bitching. There's no 
no like trying to like uh you know just get angry about what someone else is doing they're just taking the other side of the trade so i think wall street bets now is going to have maybe 10 million users and they've got a combined 65 billion dollars worth of buying power this is max kaiser like others, he has identified that Wall Street Bets is more than a bunch of traders now. It is effectively the largest hedge fund in the world, but a decentralized hedge fund, where the aggregate capital can challenge Wall Street's biggest funds. So they are now going to be setting the prices. You know, they are the uh, the biggest force in the hedge fund world now, and um, so we're going to see. A lot of uh, changing of the guard. A lot of hedge funds will go broke. A lot of them will go bust. Wall Street Bets has disrupted the traditional financial system. They have wiped billions of dollars off the books of hedge funds and undoubtedly pissed off some very rich and powerful people along the way. It came out today that the firm that was the biggest loser here, I think the firm lost 53%. Uh, in in January of the entire fund because they were uh, effectively short GameStop and had to cover losses. And this company, Melvin Capital, that lost 53% had to get a capital infusion uh, from their existing uh, shareholders in order to avoid further margin calls on the fact that they couldn't apparently unwind all of the GameStop shares fast enough in order to avoid an even further melt-up in price. Apparently, they had no choice but to slowly unwind the position in order to avoid a complete melt-up and then pay back the shares at a a huge loss. I mean, we're talking about billions uh, in in losses in one month. 53% is a staggering number. Jamie, the creator of Wall Street Bets, is happy to see a change in the power dynamic. I mean, this week has just been fascinating. You know, I'm enjoying... Uh, the, watching this from the sidelines uh, and, and seeing how this plays out. I've been fascinated by this entire subject matter for at least a decade. And what we're seeing now, I think, was not an intentional thing. And, and what we're talking about, what we're seeing now is, you know, GameStop, uh, uh, the stocks went up astronomically uh, on one side, because these Wall Street bets or, or Robinhood traders have been buying up these shares or buying up these these uh, stock options for it, uh, you have hedge funds that have been shorting it for a while because they think that uh, the company doesn't have any future or at least it's overvalued with the pandemic, and they've essentially knocked one of these guys out, right? And so Wall Street, the the participants in Wall Street, these institutions that have been around forever, they're uncomfortable because they've ran this show for a long time the way that they like to run it. It's an invite-only club. It's exclusive. They've always dismissed these individual retail traders as irrelevant. And now you have these individual retail traders that have coalesced, they've organized, and they've effectively forced their way into this elite poker table. You know, we created this whole idea of the activist short squeeze back in 2010 by going after silver to attack JP Morgan. And at that time, nobody really knew what a short sale was or certainly not what a naked short sale was. And um, so it took about 10 years for the outrage to build and build and build. And then finally, the economies of scale kicked in with Wall Street bets and the Reddit users. And there was a lot of stimulus money around. And somebody 
you know, did the due diligence and figured out that GameStop was incredibly vulnerable to an attack like this, a short squeeze. And uh, that's what happened and caused a lot of havoc. But I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think we're going to, this is the beginning now of a, of a new era. Today, the investment app Robinhood banned its users from trading GameStop shares. What is going on on Wall Street? The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people who have been investing with Robinhood and other E-Trade accounts and all this stuff by saying, hey, hedge funds are getting smoked. Billionaires are getting smoked. So we're no longer going to let you trade on certain stocks. We're just shutting it off. You can't buy those stocks anymore. You can only sell them. We are going to crash that those stocks so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed. It is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in plain sight. As I was writing this story, the news broke that Robin Hood had halted the buying of GameStop and other stocks in a similar position. There was immediate outrage across the board. Everyone from Dave Portney to AOC and Ted Cruz smelled a rat. I did too. I also heard Bill talk about the mechanics of why this happened. This is all basically what we call trading on margin, meaning if I buy those shares, I do have to put up a certain amount of capital as margin right? with what's called a prime broker. And a prime broker is just a regular broker, but who services like hedge funds and other institutional banks. So just a fancy word for basically doing the same thing. But if the price goes up too much, the collateral that they've parked with that prime broker won't cover the losses. Bill is talking about the collateral which Robinhood has parked with their prime broker. So there is actually systemic risk there because now they have to go back to the hedge fund and say, either you have to give us the shares now or you have to park more capital here, right, as collateral. And eventually, if they're losing money on this deal, they're going to run out of capital. And that's part of what happened with uh, the brokerages in this case, like um, Robinhood, who basically ran out of uh, capital in order to enable these purchases, right? So eventually, you get this scenario where, hey, you've got to shut everything down, because the company that actually settle these, settles these trades says, hey, there's not enough capital out there to really do this. Okay, while I understand Bill's point here, two things immediately come to mind. Firstly, there's plenty of capital in the system. Melvin Capital was able to raise $2.75 at little notice. Also, Robin Hood must have been aware of the negative reaction that this would create. Surely they could have asked their prime broker for some breathing space or jumping on the phone to their investors. I mean, how would this call go? Hey, Mark, you know this app you've invested in? Well, we're doing really well. So well that we're at the top of the app store, we're in every major media story right now, and our customers are trading more than ever. We've just got one problem. We're running out of working capital. This is a unicorn. This is what the Sandhill Road wants. How long does it really take to write a check to solve these problems? Yet it didn't happen, and on the morning of January the 28th, with the GameStop price at $450, Robinhood tweeted out, In light of current market volatility, we are restricting transactions for certain securities to position closing only, including AMC and GME. And with that, the price crashed, and the short sellers on Wall Street were conveniently saved. But... There is another issue which Bill highlighted, one I hadn't heard anyone else talk about. 
And Robinhood has actually yet another problem that the other brokerages don't have. And this is problem is very unique to the U.S. Okay, so in the U.S., if you uh, hook up an app like Robinhood, immediately the first thing you're going to do is you're going to link your bank account to the Robinhood app. All right. And you're going to use a process in the U.S. called ACH. In the U.K., you have uh, Faster Pay, uh, which is actually a fantastic system. In the U.S., we have ACH, which is like an unbelievable shitstorm. Okay. ACH is a way of basically moving money via debits and credits between your, uh, the, the app you're using, in this case, Robinhood, and your bank account and back and forth. Okay. Uh, it's used via Venmo. It's used via my company, Abra. It's used via Robinhood. The problem with ACH transactions is, is while they settle the next business day, you have chargeback rights as a consumer going out 60 days. So now what happens is, is if you've got millions of new consumers coming into Robinhood to buy Game, uh, GameStop and the price is melting up, everything looks great. But what happens three days later if the price of the shares falls 50%? What are all these consumers likely to do? A big chunk of them are likely to call their banks and say, I'm not the one who sent that money to Robinhood. That wasn't me, right? And, and, and disavow all knowledge of actually purchasing those shares in the first place. And they have, in theory, 60 days to do that. So Robin, Robinhood looks at this and says, hey, whoa, we've got huge exposure here. Not only do we, have enough, do we not have enough capital to settle the trades that are happening that are actually going up in price, if consumers start disavowing trades that were paid for via ACH, it's like a double whammy and we could go broke. So they had to, no choice but to actually start unwinding trades that already happened without explaining to consumers why, because the consumers don't even understand that they have 60-day chargeback rights. From their perspective, it's just settled. Yeah, but Bill, do you, do you think they just use that as their excuse? No, I don't. I think, I think now their excuse is, is they suck at communications, and they do. What they should have done is they should have been completely transparent about this from the beginning because they would have looked like, hey, we're just a victim of the fact that this is all happening and, and people are using us as the tool to do it, right? They didn't do anything wrong except not communicate what they were doing. They're simply using the system the way they're forced to use it by the SEC by uh, this other organization called DTCC, which is the Depository uh, Trust Clearing Corporation, which settles trades in the United States. They set the rules. Robinhood simply has to follow the rules like everyone else. The problem is, is when they started following those rules as they were supposed to, they didn't tell consumers that that's what they were doing. They just started doing stuff. With, and they just said, hey, we're going to turn off trading in GameStop. Jamie, however, thinks that Robinhood weren't just the innocent trading platform caught in the middle. Here, what happened is Robinhood restricted trades in some of these um, shares with uh, GameStop and, and a few other ones. And they weren't alone. There were a bunch of other brokers that had that same thing. There was understandable outrage from everybody. You know, it's, it's, it's all fun and games until the big guys are losing money. Big guys are losing money and magically, you know, they're trying to cut off the, the water supply to this thing and they're trying to put out this fire. Um, I didn't make it makes sense that some brokers would do it. it. Didn't make any sense that Robinhood would do it. So it turns out the reason why is complicated, but it has to do with uh, collateral obligations, with clearinghouse rules, and the settlement of these shares. And you know, there's this whole mechanism that takes place when you buy and sell things. Uh, and and when there's this much volatility and this much changes and prices, 
these brokers need to put up more cash. That's the easiest way I can explain it. And they didn't have that cash. So what that says to me, that doesn't get them off the hook at all. That's just an explanation. Just like the, the banks don't get off the hook in 20, uh, 2008 for having these mortgage-backed securities or, or, or whatever. Um, this just points out the problem. The system is still not robust enough to handle this type of activity, right? Uh, the retail traders shouldn't have to worry about clearing houses. They want to buy this company, right? Maybe they're gambling, maybe they're having fun, or maybe they're investing in their retirement fund and they want to they collect dividends. Who knows? They should be able to just click buy and just be able to have it. The fact that these brokers weren't ready for it, you know, it's just banks these days go through stress tests. They, they simulate crises like we had it before uh, to make sure they can withstand it. And it's, it's, part of the, the reforms that took place after 2008. What's clear is that these brokers haven't had the proper stress test to withstand these stampedes of, of thumb traders, these high-risk thumb traders that aren't afraid of margin calls. Many saw Robinhood closing its doors to buyers of GameStop shares as another example of the little man being unfairly treated by Wall Street and big business. Jamie thinks that this treatment highlights the fact that this movement is motivated by more than financial gain. After knocking out that fund, there, the dialogue changed a little bit. And both from the people that were participating in this, you know, sure, hurrah, let's hold hands, look what we've done. And people that are observing this from the outside, I, I, I keep getting the increased sense that, that a lot of these pent up feelings uh, that were created in 2010 when the Occupy Wall Street movement was kicking in are kind of resurfacing. Um, not in the same situation. We're not in a financial crisis where... You know, this generation may not even remember, like at least the youngest one doesn't anymore. But people remember it. Nothing came out of that, that unfairness, this 99%, whatever, this elite establishment. And, and now I'm hearing a lot of similar words. So I think it's turning into something. And now that we've seen politicians on both sides, I, I was on a program last night where the anchor said, uh, AOC, this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's a super progressive liberal uh, congresswoman. You have Elizabeth Warren, this is senator and similar demographic. And then you have Ted Cruz, which is a Republican, completely on the other side of the spectrum. And then you have Donald Trump Jr., who's, you know, obviously aligned with Donald Trump. All of them holding hands saying, we have to fix this Wall Street situation. These little guys, it's unfair. You know, th that, that forces conversation. The White House had to comment on this story. When you see these things, that's how movements start. It's individuals versus institutions. It's sort of like the traditional range of power and kind of elites versus the common person. And I mean, the thing that's been, you know... Nathaniel's views here reflect like the atmosphere sort of that was bubbling on social media. We all know that Wall Street is an arm of government. We know that the big guys get away with playing the system. And we all saw what happened in 2008 when the global economy was brought to its knees by greedy bankers, yet nobody went to jail. But this time it was so blatant. For once the little guy was winning. Yet just as they were going in for the kill, the uprising was suppressed. I think what's so frustrating about American politics is 
that gets used, captured, and turned into a left versus right thing, right? I mean, like the the last four years of American politics, the last six years of American politics have been entirely defined by populism, but it's right populism and left populism, and it just has kind of different expressions, but it's the same thing. And I think that one of the things that makes Wall Street Bets such an interesting movement, and certainly for people like you and I has made Bitcoin such an interesting movement, is that although you can kind of maybe track like right or left sympathy or whatever, like it kind of obliterates that. It's about a more fundamental set of questions. And I think it's been one of the more fascinating things that happened last week is to see like AOC on the one hand, you know, and sort of people who are on the far right on the other, like laying claim to this. And so well, not even laying claim to this, but just sort of like supporting it. It's just so obviously like if there's one group that the left and the right can like agree to hate, it's hedge fund managers, I guess, you know, <laughs> maybe that's what it comes down to. What's quite interesting is that, um, I think there's a lot of secrecy in the stock market, certainly within the hedge funds and what they're doing. What's really interesting about Wall Street Bets, it was fully transparent. It's completely completely out in the open, and everyone can see what they're doing. And in some ways, it makes me think, actually, the approach may be for someone like the SEC to think of more regulations and tighter laws around this. Actually, I feel like everything should just be opened up. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting if you hear like, so um, Chamath uh, Palabatia came out hard for Wall Street Bets. So, you know, he went in and he hadn't spent much time looking at it. He looked at GameStop. He basically spent a full day, you know, diving in and reading everything they had. And he did like a, a full half an hour with um, what's his face from CNBC, Scott uh, Kemper or whatever his name is. And one of the things that he kept coming back to is he was like, look, these guys are saying everything out in the open. And basically what we have right now is a market where every company that's a publicly traded company has to report everything itself uh, about itself in the open. You know, like all these different types of ETFs and funds, they have to report absolutely everything. The only part of the market that's opaque is sort of private firms like these hedge funds, right? He's like, why doesn't every firm, if we, if we really want to create a level playing field, it's not for Wall Street bets to not be able to exist. It's for these hedge funds to have to publish their plays. You know what I mean? I think there'd be a pretty reasonable argument that um, opacity, not only is opacity not part of the playbook, it's uh, being opaque plus leveraging media and your media connections to try to self-fulfilling prophecy your position into existence. It's not like these guys took a secret position in GameStop like to short it. It's they took a position in GameStop to short it and have done the media tour trying to convince everyone what a crappy company it is, which is the whole, like, why, how is that not market manipulation? Which is another point that these guys on these internet forums make all the time, which is like CNBC is the delivery mechanism for traditional finance to manipulate the market if this if taking a position and saying it out loud is what we call market manipulation. What I wanted to know was would this be the catalyst that revolutionizes the financial system as we know it? This is the perfect storm, in my opinion, right? So you're in the middle of a pandemic. You've got people who are working from home. So even if you are working You're not commuting, so you've got more free time. You're not going out with other people, so you've got more free time. You're sitting in front of your computer probably 2x the amount of time that you already were, right? So so we're all staring at screens all day right now to get our entertainment. We're getting stimulus checks. It is literally the perfect storm. At the same time, all these consumers, while they can't necessarily explain it, are pissed. They're mad at their governments. They're mad at these corporations. They're mad at the banks. They're mad at the hedge funds, and they're tired of, of, of all the bailouts. And, and so now you, you basically say, okay, we had Occupy Wall Street in like 2009, 2010. 
This is like that, but you can actually take explicit action at the same time. You can have check marks to say, if we do this, 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 and this, not only are we going to screw them, we're actually going to make a lot of money doing it, right? And it's perfectly fair. We can be totally transparent about it, and there's still nothing they can do about it. That's the ultimate Occupy Wall Street. And, and so in that regard, to answer your question, the game has totally changed. Now, what we don't know is what are the legal repercussions and what are the regulatory repercussions as a result when, you know, the U.S. House Financial Committee gets a hold of this and starts digging in. And I hope they don't create a whole bunch of additional, you know, draconian regulations that consumers don't understand or don't protect anyone or maybe even overly protect hedge funds. That shouldn't happen as a result of this. But the game has definitely changed. The, the culture plays a huge aspect of it. You know, what I, what I think is you have this demographic of younger individuals. These are Generation Z. These are millennials that grew up with an inherent distrust in the financial system. You know, they saw the dot-com bubble. Uh, maybe they, they were too young and they saw the um, uh, 2008 financial crisis. And they saw their parents' house go upside down. They graduated college with that, you know, and it's all because of this thing called Wall Street. You know, they're hearing fancy words, these mortgage-backed security, collateralized debt obligations. They don't, you know, they're just seeing that this thing is not a serious thing, and that's not where they want to park their money in the long term. Uh, so, and it adds some pop culture to it. You get movies, The Wolf of Wall Street, you get The Big Short, you know, where they're, they're uh you know, making light of this uh, stock market and, and further adding to the narrative that it's, you know, a bit of a casino. So they most definitely have this mindset going into it. And now economy got better. People got and got jobs. Now they got some disposable income. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're that interested in, in, in putting their entire retirement nest egg in the market. Maybe they deal with their retirement funds. But for the most part, they're saying, all right, well, Let's go ahead and see if we can make some money too. The big guys have been doing it forever, and now we can do it too. You add that to the to the advent of these low cost or free brokers that are app based with access to options, with access to ETFs, which is just a fancy word for being able to buy anything you feel like buying. Now you can buy mortgage backed securities with stock options that are leveraged or whatever from a from a, a, an app on your phone that resembles a game. For so long, Wall Street's power in the market has gone unanswered, but a relatively small community of self-titled degenerates have changed the game. I reached out to my friend Preston Pish, host of the We Study Billionaires podcast, to see if he thought we're at the start of a revolution. I, I have no idea how it really kind of plays out, other than this manipulation narrative is going to just grow stronger. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating year. I can't even imagine where we're going to be at by the end of 2021. Well, that's why I talk about it being like a revolution. I, I do see a them and us. I think the left v. right has been a distraction. It's really a them v. us. Um, and on the them, I put the central banks, some politicians, uh, some hedge funds, some vultures. And on the us, I have you, me, Wall Street Bets, Dave Portnoy, uh, even someone like AOC, who I'm not a huge fan of, and I think uh, we're in a position now over the next year, it's going to be a case of choose your side. And I think the politicians who don't side with the people and the media companies who don't side with the people, I think they're going to get squeezed out. I think this is the start of something. Yeah, I think people are furious and people 
absolutely love that Wall Street bets is opening is is conducting themselves in an open manner and they're teaming up together it's uh, you know you heard Chapman say that it's the biggest hedge fund in the world right now i totally agree with that and i think it's only getting bigger by the day so how do you stop that i don't know um i do i do look at it as well what are we going to do are we going to ban outside trading because we know inside trading is banned but this is outside trading are we now going to are we now going to manipulate the market so much that we're going to ban outside trading I, I don't know but boy it's getting interesting Hey, Peter, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Amanda? Good. Do you hear Bezos? And so I was closing out this show, wondering how to conclude it, when my friend Amanda slid into my DMs and sent me an image. Anyway, I need to talk to you about something. Sure. What's this? um, You sent me something. You sent me a DM on Twitter. Um, Well, I think I know what it's about, but can you tell me what it's about? Yeah, on the the clubhouse talk with Elon and then bringing Vlad from Robin Hood up. Yeah. Okay, so we need to go back a couple of days to set this up. Back when Elon Musk, the richest person in the world, tweeted that he would be on Clubhouse, the hot new Silicon Valley social network. If you haven't yet been on Clubhouse, it is essentially a 24-7 virtual conference where each room has a panel of speakers and others who can listen in. While Elon answered questions about Mars, Neuralink and Bitcoin, he also asked if he could talk to Vlad Tenev, the co-founder of Robin Hood. Well, do you, do you want to hear the real story um, uh, from Vlad from Robin Hood about what happened this week with GameStop? Uh, uh, but sure, go for it. Okay, you need to like let him somehow click on a button so he can talk. Um, Elon, okay, uh, Vlad, uh, can you hear us? Vlad the stock impaler. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me up. It's good to hang with all of you. All right, Vlad. Was, what really happened? Give us the inside scoop. Also in that clubhouse room, helping facilitate the conversation was Mark Andreessen from A16Z, an investor in Clubhouse. The part that I thought was kind of interesting and just shows a little bit how incestuous the tech world is and and. You know why I'm a little suspicious of the interview between Vlad and Elon is the room that it was hosted. In. With the win knocked out is of the GameStop short squeeze, Robin Hood managed to raise a $2.4 billion cash injection in four days. This on top of the $1 billion it received a few days previous. And I just can't help but question whether their prime brokers could have been sent the collateral required or asked to wait a couple of days. I mean, surely this would have been great business for everyone. I guess when Robin Hood's biggest customers are the hedge funds that Wall Street Bets was inflicting the most pain upon, were they going to bite the hand that feeds them? Yes, Citadel, who bailed out Melvin Capital, they pay Robin Hood for their order flow data, and this is how Robin Hood provides fee-free trading. Are all these just coincidences? Can we trust what these companies are telling us? Citadel themselves were fined $22 million by the SEC in 2017 because its algorithms were screwing over the retail investors whose order flows it was purchasing. And in December of last year, Robinhood was charged by the SEC for misleading customers about revenue sources and failing to satisfy duty of best execution. So where do we go from here? Will it just be another slap on the wrist for Robinhood 
a multi-million dollar fine while their Wall Street clients are saved from billions in further losses. Well, the SEC is investigating, and I spoke to Commissioner Hester Peirce about this. The views that I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the Securities and Exchange Commission or my fellow commissioners. Well, as an initial matter, I'm not going to say anything about any particular company um, or any particular security, but I think it's important for people to be aware that there are rules around shorting um, and we enforce those rules. And the data around shorting that people rely on, you know, they, they need to make sure that what they're relying on is accurate data. And, and that may or may not be the case um, when you read news articles that people have have accurate data. So, I, you know, as I encourage everyone, to, you need to take a step back. Um, and, and not try to draw conclusions from particular facts that you're seeing written about, um, which may or may not be accurate. In an instance like this, where there's a lot of market volatility and a lot of um, action in, in the markets, the way there has been over the past, um, the past couple weeks, we are obviously watching what's going on. And we are looking at many, it's a multi-layered issue. We're looking at many different angles of it. Of course, one of the things that we do is we warn investors that when you do decide to get involved with something like this, you have to be prepared um, in any volatile market for dramatic and, and substantial losses. So that's one piece of what we're doing. And then, of course, we look to see whether there's manip manipulative activity in the markets. We, we look to see how um, broker dealers are interacting with their customers and um, how different market participants are, are engaging in the markets. Um, but, you know, as with, as with most things like this, there's no immediate action from us in the sense that, that we, we let markets work. We expect people to participate in the markets according to our rules, and the markets are open for everyone to participate in. I think that everyone from institutional investors to retail investors can play a really important role in price formation, which is, you know, essentially discovering what the price of any security should be. Um, but everyone who engages needs to needs to be aware that there are risks. And so, you know, this is, this is America, you're free, you're free to trade how you want, as long as it's consistent with the rules and not manipulative. I asked Hester, if the last few weeks have exposed flaws in the system, and if the laws are antiquated, and reforms are needed. Well, I think that's a great question. And I think any time um, that we see something that's maybe not your standard fare in the markets, we're going to look at our rules. Um, we we have actually done quite a bit of, of work on our equity market structure rules over the past couple of years. But I, but I think that, again, it's something that we'll take a look at. We'll look at the rules around equities, the rules around options. So I think in the rules around transparency and those kinds of things. So certainly things like this do get us thinking about our rules. However you look at the events of the last two weeks, there are obviously flaws in the system. Perhaps Robin Hood genuinely were forced to stop the buying of GameStop. And maybe traders need to accept that if they want fee-free trading, then their data is the currency. But then I question whether these markets are truly fair and equal. Too many parts of the system are opaque, with this being exposed by the opposite, the totally transparent and public strategy of the traders from Wall Street Bets. Whatever happens now, a bunch of degenerates on Reddit have changed the game. 
and they don't give a fuck about the Wall Street status quo. This show was written and narrated by myself with additional writing and production support from Danny Knowles and Tom Pattinson. Audio production and sound design was also by Danny Knowles. I would like to thank Jamie Rogozinski, Bill Barheit, Max Kaiser, Nathaniel Whittemore and Preston Pish for their valuable time and insights. Support from Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Google Apple App Stores. I'm Peter McCormack. Head over to defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films. You can also head over to whatbitcoindid.com to check out our sister podcast. And if you head over to neveredit.com, you can also subscribe to our newsletter.